0: Hope Church. Good morning, everybody. Glad y'all are here um, this morning. Beautiful fall day. You know, and and I have to admit that I was one who, um, who would say things like August the 55th or August the 64th in terms of how long our summer has lasted this year, and it was certainly all over um, you know, social media here in the South about how how it was. And I'm just thinking about that and going, okay, but when we have beautiful days, then do we go, Man, what an awesome day, and give thanks and put that on our social media and all of that. And just a just a thought that it's it's always just easier for us to complain than it is to give thanks. But man, when you were out there yesterday, hard not to give thanks, right? I mean Just an amazingly um, beautiful day. And so, um, and the the interesting thing for us is like, you know, complaining is is relative in the sense of, you know, we are here in the south. It's hot. I get it. I don't, I mean, that many days of of heat. Um, I'm also like, okay, where is fall? Um, We had our little faux fall for like one weekend, a little fake fall. Um, But, you know, in today's lesson, we're going to talk about people who are, going through a drought um, for, for three years and just to think that you know while things were really hot and I was complaining about it, I still had fresh water like delivered inside of my house. I didn't have to walk a long way to get it. Um, for most of the time I actually had I had air conditioning. There's a few days we didn't because I broke but um, it, it, that also makes you thankful. you know you sit in your house without air conditioning for a couple days. And then when you get it back, you're like, yes, this is such a wonderful invention. It's also a very new one, um, you know, relatively speaking to how long humans have been on, on the earth. So, you know, we have so much to be thankful for. And I just want to encourage myself and all of, this, all of us this morning to um, put our, our complaining in perspective. And perhaps that would cause us to uh, complain less and to give thanks more. Um, because a thankful life is certainly more joyful than a disgruntled one, than a complaining life. Um, and so let's um, seek to do that. But you know, um, unfortunately in our, in our whole world we, we know what sells and, and complaining and bad news sell. Um, and so we, we have to uh, approach things a little bit differently than our world does in, in that regard. But we're going to continue our study this morning in Second Samuel, so we'll be in chapter twenty-one and twenty-two. Chapters twenty-one and twenty-two um, this morning. And and before we we pray and, and get into this, I, I do want to preface that this is you know another one of those passages that has you know challenges um, and and difficulties um, um, in it. It's a it's a hard passage. There's a couple things that happen in this story where you're like, man, that does that. Does that seem fair to, you know, to us? Um, and so we'll talk about that and, and, and do, um, try to do justice to the passage. So let's pray this morning and give thanks to God. So Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We've, we're thankful that we're here and we have breath and we have life. And we're thankful for those in our church family who couldn't be here today for one reason or another. But we ask that you would bless them and that though um, not in the same room right now, we'd still be united in spirit. Um, And Lord, we are thankful for each one here. We're thankful for this beautiful um, weather that you've given us yesterday and today, and and we give you thanks for it, God. We give you thanks uh, for air to breathe and for water to drink, Um, and we give you thanks that we can look into your word this morning, and we pray that from it you would teach us. Um, Even in the difficult passages, Lord, help us to walk away with something that we have learned profoundly, and that we will be thankful for what we have learned we ask it in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so chapter 21, verse 1 begins. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of the Israel, but of, of the remnant of of the Amorites, and the children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. So let's stop there for a minute after those two verses and set a little bit of of, of context of what's the story that happened before and and what's happening here. So when the children of Israel had come out of Egypt, they had been they had been in Egypt for four hundred years in slavery. Um, so the children of Israel um, had been in in that, the, the Hebrew people. And so when they came out of, of Israel, God went before them and gave them you know, great um, you know, victories. Um, we know in their disobedience, a whole generation had to pass away um, in the desert as they wandered the desert for 40 years. But then Joshua leads them into the promised land. And they're supposed to take that land, and that was the land that had been promised um, you know, to Abraham that his descendants would dwell um, in that land. And so they go in, and remember, they may march around the walls of Jericho, the city of Jericho, and the city of Jericho falls. Um, and then they also have victory over Ai, another city that is there. And so these Gibeonites live near there, and they know they are in the direct path, like, like you know, the, the Hebrew people are coming right through there, And that, you know, they're next, you know, sort of thing. So they come up with this plan. They're like, let's pretend to be travelers from a really far away place and that we are ambassadors from there and that we are going to come and make peace with the Hebrew people so they don't fight against us. Okay. So they go and they put on old, raggedy, you know, clothes. They take moldy bread. Um, They, you know act like they basically have run out of, of provisions. And they come you know, to them and they say, they come to the Hebrew people and to Joshua and the leaders and they say, please, you know, make peace with us. We are from far away. We're not a threat to you. You know, let's have a, let's make a peace between you and I. And so Joshua and the leaders make a mistake because they don't, consult God's wisdom, and they don't fully investigate the matter. They look at the per- the surface of things and they go, well, their clothes are old. They've got moldy bread. Um, yeah, they've come from a long way. Okay, so they're not a threat to us. We'll just make a, a, a pact with them. So they make peace. And then they find out, well, these people live just basically over the hill, you know, sort of thing. Um, now, to us, we would say, hey, that, that deal is off because it was made under false terms, right? Like, there was a pretense. So that deal, you know, we would say, okay, that deal is off. But for them, they said no. Joshua and the leader said no. We made this pact before God and we made a promise. It was, basically, it was our responsibility to investigate the matter. We made a bad deal and now we have to own up to the we have to fulfill the obligations of the bad deal that we made. Their dishonesty, basically it comes down to their dishonesty was not an excuse for us that we didn't do our due diligence, that we didn't investigate the matter fully. Okay. So that's they, they hold on to that. But then it says that Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah um, you know, didn't keep that didn't keep that cup co- that, that covenant that agreement he, he broke it his zeal for them he, you know it doesn't say his zeal for God because that's not what God wanted him to do it was his nationalism for his own people, his desire for what was best for his own people or what he thought was best for them that caused him to and he and his household to do that and to um, to persecute and to try to destroy the Gibeonites. Now, God doesn't, didn't take kindly to that. and though justice may be delayed, justice is still going to happen. And so God basically causes a, a famine for them, not a famine, but a drought. Um, it hadn't gotten, you know they would keep provisions. So it's getting to the point where, hey, this could go poorly for us if we have another season, you know, where we don't have rains and we don't, you know, produce, you know, crops. Uh, you know, the, the people here were, were wise and that they kept um, grain and they didn't use everything they produced every year but that they held some, you know, back for when times were not as good and, and that the, perhaps there's um, some financial lessons there <laughs> that we need to be more diligent uh, you know, to apply, you know, not to use up everything as it comes in, but to store some um, for when things don't go as well, because, you know, even though we're not dependent on the rains in most of our businesses, you know, that still things go up and down. Economies go up and down. Things are not static. They don't stay the same. They're dynamic. They move. And some sometimes, you know, we've been, you know, in our nation now in a, in a season where um, work has been, you know, plentiful, um, opportunities have been present, but we know that that's not likely to always be that way. But the problem with us, you know, we kind of think when things are good, things are always going to be good, and when things are bad, things are always going to be bad. But that's not the case. Things move, things shift, things change. Um and so these are difficult times. And so at year three, they're like, perhaps we should inquire to the Lord of what's happening here. Because, you know, I mean, sometimes there's not as much rain one year or there's you know there's a drought. And then it happens two years. And you go, okay, that's not good. You're starting to see year number three and you go, okay, maybe we have a bigger problem. Maybe it's, you know, we look back in our scriptures and, and it says, you know, when we're obeying God, like, God's going <laughs> to going to make sure we have what we need, and when we're not obeying God, things aren't going to go well for us, so have we been not obeying God? Let's maybe find out. And so they ask. And it's because of what Saul's house had done um, to the Gibeonites. So in verse 3 it says, Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he, that's David, King David, answered. He said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. So here um, we have a, uh, a, a very kind of like wow you know, sort of scene um, and request that happens. You know, the Gibeonites, it's interesting how David you know, makes the offer to them and says, you know, well, what do you want? How do we make atonement? Um, And he says, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. Um, You know, and it seems that at this point, you know, the Gibeonites have been, um, I think, significantly influenced by the fact that they they live in Israel and among, you know, the people um, of Yahweh, and they have, you know, heard the law and they have understood, you know, the law. Because uh, what they asked for is um, in, in many ways in accordance you know to that law the fact that they say don't we don't want silver or gold because in the law it said you know you couldn't you couldn't buy someone out of a, of a case where they were supposed to be executed because they had commit you know for example they had committed murder you couldn't just say well the family couldn't say well instead of um, You know this person who committed the murder being executed. We'll just take some money. We'll just take some silver or gold instead, and you can let the person, you know, be free. That wasn't allowed in the law. In the law, it's it's very much um, an eye for an eye and a a tooth for a tooth, um, you know, exchange. And we've talked about this before that that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is a great help in advancement. Um, in terms of what humans are prone to do you know because reality is you know humans most of the time don't want justice humans want uh, vengeance and vengeance you know revenge always go you know goes a level beyond the you know I mean you think about uh, you know two people um, you know they say words to each other one says words and the other one says the same level of words no you Harsher words. Then the other one says harsher words. Then it gets to the point where words aren't enough, so one has to push, and then the other one has to shove. And then one has to hit, and then the other one has to hit harder. And there's the desire to up the ante each time. And so what the law of Moses did brilliantly was to keep that escalation from happening by saying what is equal that was done wrong, equal will be given in its place. Okay, um, and, and sometimes there were things, I mean, especially in, in physical things, that's the case, and some things in terms of theft, to reduce people, to take away that incentive you know, to steal, you know, it's like there's going to be a multiple attached to it. If you take one, you have to give this many you know, back, and there's reasons for that in law as well, in order to reduce the risk-reward. You know, is it worth the risk? for the sinful heart to do something bad, well, you know, is it worth the reward, I should say? Is it worth the reward of I'm going to get something that I didn't earn, but if I get caught, I'm going to be in a much worse situation than I was before, so, okay, I won't do it, right? So these things are built into that law as well, but when it came to human-on-human conflict and physical punishment, that's what would happen. Now, we aren't told the details of what Saul had done. We aren't told how many died. Um, you know, we don't we don't know all of that were there were were there seven who died or is each one representing a multiple of the gibeonites that had died under from Saul's reign and his household what they had done. Okay? We're not told the details of all of that, but, but King David doesn't view this as an unequal exchange. He views it as a, a fair exchange for the sins that have been committed by Saul's house, that this would be the punishment for Saul's house. Now, for us, we have a little bit of a problem with this because you know we, we live in a very individualistic um, society, and we don't view things based on families. We view things based on individuals. So, you know, why is somebody else going to be punished for what Saul did? Or maybe, I mean, are we sure all of these individual individuals were involved in that? Or were some of them, you know, they're just part of that household? Okay, and so we have feelings about that. And, um, you know, part of that is just, you know, a different culture and a different cultural way of, a, of, of how we view um, family and how we, you know, we view a household, and, and guilt and innocence, and those types of things. Um, part of it is now, we're, we're not under the Old Testament law. You know, we're in a different system. okay. And so while we've been affected greatly by the sins of others, we stand before God on our own individually now, based on what Jesus has done for us and our belief in him, and that he died for us on the cross and he rose from the dead or our rejection from him. See, when it comes to God, you know, it's not what my household has done, what my family has done with Jesus. It's what have I done, you know, with Jesus. So, you know, it's we can read back into the Old Testament from that lens, okay? Because we see things through that lens of of our guilt or innocence based on Jesus one-to-one, okay? But so we have a hard time with guilt being given to this, this household. And even in the Old Testament, it says, shall the you know, son pay for the sins of the fathers? You know, certainly not. So that's the general case. But here, this is an exceptional clause, uh, exceptional case. What's it? This is an exceptional case And there's several reasons for that. And one reason for that is, you know, the people, have the Israelites as a whole, have rejected God's um, theocracy, like that they would just have the priests and, you know, leaders and that God would tell them what to do. And they said, no, we're going to be like the other nations. We're going to have a king. And with that came certain negatives. So what that meant was that a king could make decisions and then, through that, spread guilt to everyone. Now, that's not, that's not um, unheard of so far in the scriptures because we go back to Genesis. Okay, We go back to Genesis and what do you find? You find Adam's sin and then all of his descendants, all of us even in this room, are now born with a propensity to sin, a sin nature. Okay, so we we suffer because of what one before us had done. There's also cases in um, you know before this, even in that are recorded in the law where one sins and that sin you know, then affects others. Others die because of that person's rebellion. And this teaches us something about consequence. This teaches us about consequence that when we make decisions, particularly Really, really good ones that are important, or really, really bad ones that are important. That has effects on, on other people, on other people. You know when, um, and and we just we know this, um, and we under we understand this. It still doesn't make us necessarily fully comfortable with this as we as we read. You know, the passage. One thing that I would also say that's interesting here is the fact that show that that any of Saul's descendants are alive, period, at this point, shows David's heart being fundamentally different than the normal heart of kings. Okay? Because remember the 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 people said, We're gonna be like the other nations around us, and we're gonna have a king. Well, what did did those nations do when they had a king? Well, they needed to obey that king, right? But then when there's a change, whenever there'll be a change from one family to another family, usually those who took power didn't leave anyone alive because they didn't want to leave any future competition for their descendants, right? And so... You know, it's interesting because, you know, that's a game that people were willing to play. Like, you know, powerful families saying, we're going to be king. No, we're going to be king. And they're willing to risk literally everything. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like, might have been better off just kind of being like in the middle somewhere, you know, and being okay with that. (laughs) But, you know, that desire for power and that human desire for power and that human, you know, pride you know causes people to take great risks that then affects others and so people knew in these surrounding nations you know in a family like if we try to be king it's an all or nothing proposition because if we don't make it everybody's going to be everybody is going to be slaughtered this is why when Saul and Jonathan are killed by the Philistines and war gets back to Saul's house the the maid of uh, Jonathan's son Mephibosheth picks him up and runs and in that running falls, drops him and his his ankles are broken and he can never walk again. Okay, why was she running? Because the assumption was as soon as Saul and Jonathan are dead that David being a rival is going to come in and slaughter everybody because that's what a normal person a normal king is going to do, as horrible as that sounds. But this is what's really interesting about that. That uh, that assumption that that woman makes, she would make about any human being that had been put in the position that David had been put in, in a rivalry against another, you know, a household versus a household. Over authority of who was going to be king over the nation. Her expectation was any human put in that position will slaughter his enemies. Anyone. And that tells us something about the general assumption of the human heart when it comes right down to it. Because, you know, people will say, well, people are basically good. You know, people are basically good, and, you know, it's only outside influences that make people. Better. And people will say that theoretically, but practically, if they're put in that woman's shoes in that situation, she's running. And she's running because of fear. And it's a right sort of fear to have because the human heart apart from God is wicked. And given opportunity and position, will do terrible, terrible things. We don't necessarily like that a whole lot, but that's the reality, folks. She's not, she didn't, you know, nobody reads that story. You know, and the interesting thing about that, nobody questions that. I've never heard anybody read that story with that woman picking up Mephibosheth and running and go, you know, I mean, that's kind of wild that she would run. I mean, I, I just don't even understand. No, I mean, we all understand intuitively why she's running. Nobody ever asked the question. It's obvious to us that she runs because of the wickedness of the average human heart. The average human heart. Not someone unusual. There's something to think about. But in this case, they their view, what they're asking for for justice, is seven men of the descendants. You know, so I think it's very safe to say that it was much more than one Gibeonite who had died. You know, that this is going to be representative of the Gibeonites who had died under the household of Saul. And this king said, I will give them. And then verse seven, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, that's a different Mephibosheth, apparently a common name in that household, the two sons of Rispah, the daughter of Aai, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Himalathite. And he the. Sorry. there's a question in the text there of which daughter of Saul it was. we think it's Merib. some of your translations are going to say Michael. We think it's Merib because in another passage it says that uh, Michael was childless so there's a some of the old Hebrew texts have give one name and some of them give up the, the other. The ones who have that um, as Michael continue with that you know phrase. Um, and the others don't. So there we go. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to day, death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Rispah, the daughter of Ai, took south cloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the fields by night. And David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the streets of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gil- Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan, his son, in the country of Benjamin and Zelah, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded, and after that, God, God heeded the prayer for the land. So here, I mean, this is a um, an in, uh, a really, I mean, in, in many ways, a disturbing scene as you um, as you see what has happened as these. Seven men were executed for the sins of that household and for what that household had done um, to um, from you know one of, of Saul's wives and, and five from another. so well just different lines of, of from, from the different mothers, but this is this is a really terrible thing, and the one you know we're not read what what one does. Um, Sorry, let me rephrase that. It it was it wasn't. One was the daughter of Saul, so Saul's grandsons um, were five, and then a a wife of Saul was the other two, Um, and that had been a marriage to you know have an alliance. So there's um, there's the scene, and it's pretty horrific. And Rizpah, um, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, um, she goes and she puts she puts out this like sackcloth that she's going. I mean, it's a it's not a comfortable material, and that's going to be her bed. And then she's going to stay there underneath these bodies and keep the birds and the beasts of the field away. Um, you know, and it's interesting that they you know in normal circumstances. You know that after an execution, there's burial, okay, under normal circumstances. These, this situation isn't normal because um, that burial doesn't happen, you know, right away. And I think it's because um, they were letting everyone know and be reminded of the oath that Joshua had made with the Gibeonites, and that breaking that oath. Had serious consequences. Um, this is this is a radical thing that is done, but it's done to pr- protect a minority that has been given certain promises. Because the Gibeonites do not have the political or um, or just even the human power necessary to defend themselves they're in a situation where if the, if the Hebrews said, well, we're going to break the covenant and we're just going to you know, wipe them out, they have the, the size of force capable of doing that. So an example and a, re, a long-term, like rem, doing this in a way that's going to remind the people that this story is going to be told from generation to generation, like don't break Joshua's covenant with the Gibeonites. Don't do it. <laughs> Is, is the way that this is being set up. To, so to us, it seems really extreme. It is really extreme. But it's really extreme for a purpose. That that covenant being broken is a really big deal before God. And, and this, again, goes back to that misconception that people have in terms of, yes, the Hebrews, Israelite people had special like favor and responsibilities, you know, with God and that they're given the scriptures and they're given all these things. But God does not eliminate his holiness and his justice from that equation. He still holds them you know accountable and he still expects them to treat you know, to honor their promises. Okay, like that's there's still that expectation there, you know, for them. And we would actually, as you read the entire Old Testament, you see that God's standard for Israel is higher because when they do what is wrong, they get punished more significantly than other nations do. Like with that privilege came greater responsibility and with that greater responsibility came greater you know, judgment. Okay, so that's the, that's the story. All right? And, and we need to like, have a good understanding and to remember to remember that. So you know, again, now people, some people will write a few commentaries this week. They're just basically like, "Well, I mean, you know, it wasn't so great, but this is what happened." Well, I mean, of course, it's not so great, but it's simplistic. It's too simplistic to say, "Well, this isn't necessarily what God wanted to have happen in terms of the judgment." But notice that after all of this is done, it says that God heeded the prayer for the land. God approved. You can't really eliminate that from the story, you know. That's it's it's there, um, and I think that that's important. That that justice, you know, has been satisfied um, in this case. In this case, so notice though that that David brings up um, the the bones of Saul and Jonathan. Um, so that's. Basically, you know, the Philistines had had taken the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and and had put them on their city wall. And, you know, the men of Jabesh Gilead were, um, you know, heroic and and went and traveled all night and took those down and took them away and they buried them where they were. But, you know, David sees this as an opportunity where he's actually going to honor Saul um, and Jonathan and kind of remove this. Uh, you know, the time of example um, and lesson learned is over. So these seven who were, you know, um, executed, and he's going to have a burial. He's going to bury all of them and, and remove that, you know, situation. So that story um, comes to a conclusion. In verse 15, it says, When the Philistines were at war with Israel, David and his servants... Uh, with him went down and fought against the Philistines, and David grew faint. Then Ishbi benob who was one of the sons of the giant, the weight of, um, that be a son of Goliath, the weight of whose bronze spear was 300 shekels, who was bearing um, a new weapon, thought he could kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of Israel swore to him, saying, You shall go out no more with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp. Of Israel, and so in this in this scene, you know David is an older. You know he's getting older, and he doesn't have the strength that he had in his youth. But he, you know, had learned his lesson about not going out to battle and having messed things up royally um, there. No pun intended. But uh, you know he, he messes it all up, and then he goes. He you know now he's always like been in recent times. He's going back out to battle again. And so this time he finds himself facing another giant. Remember when he was young, very young, he had um, taken down um, the, the giant Goliath uh, with a sling and a stone. And, you know, he's getting tired in a way that he wouldn't have been tired in, in younger days. And there's this giant, check this out now, it says... He's got a bronze spear. The head of it weighs three hundred shekels. So three hundred shekels—that sounds like well, that's a ton. I mean, it is a lot. It's like seven and a half pounds. You know, so the end of this thing is seven and a half pounds. Then there's a long shaft to it. So I mean, total weight of this thing is you know probably twenty some pounds something. I mean, it's it's heavy, and this dude's big enough to be able to throw that on a rope like you know a guy throwing a tight tight spiral. Um, You know, if it hits somebody. That's game over, okay? And it says he has, you know, you may say a, a, new sword, a new sword, but the Hebrew there is actually like a new weapon. So, you know, you can, I guess that's kind of left to the imagination of what this new weapon he has in his other hand. But it's a pretty, you know, this, this dude's a bad dude. And he's coming after David. Uh, and then it says Abishai, you know, basically steps in. Between and saves David's life and takes the giant down. Remember, Abishai again is one of David's um, nephews. Um, he's the brother of Joab, and so they um, he has a victory there. But afterwards, they're like, "All right, King David, um, you know, we love you and we appreciate you being here, but you can't be on the battlefield anymore because if you die, that's going to be really bad. You know, our enemies are going to try to take advantage." Of that situation, so we need to keep you alive as long as possible. So, no more battlefield for you. And then it continues to tell us about the fight against certain Philistine um, giants, verses eighteen through twenty-two. Now, it happened afterward that was again a battle with the Philistine at Gob. Then, Sabikiah the Hushathite killed Saph, who was one of the sons of the giant. Again, there was war at Gob with the Philistines, where Elihan, the son of Jair Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Yet again, there was war at Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, um, 24 in number. And he also was born to the giant when he defied Israel. Jonathan, the son of Shimeah, David's brother, killed him. These four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. So we learn there that bigger is not always better in warfare, uh, that um, skill and tactics uh, matter um, in these sort of things, and that um, with God's help, um, great odds can be overcome. Um, And I think that there is a lesson there for us because though most of us will never be involved in a warfare or we'll have to fight a giant or any of those things, we fight different types of giants. Um, And sometimes the odds can seem very much stacked against us, um, but with God, all things are possible and we can have great victory. Okay, so that should give us some hope. So, chapter twenty-two is basically a, a psalm of David. It's a it's a psalm of thanksgiving for God's deliverance. It's parallel to Psalm eighteen. Um, chapter twenty-two, I mean, has fifty-one verses. Verse one is introduction. Psalm eighteen has fifty verses, <laughs> so you can do the math on that. Uh, but they're very, very um, similar. Uh, I mean, they're Basically, I mean, you can argue that they're the same. You know, they're basically the same concept, the same, um, if not the same psalm itself. But here we go. It says, And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and horn of my salvation. My stronghold, my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. That's just a strong words, and just remembering the words of Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, "You know, who hears my words and word and does them? He's like the one who built his house on the rock, right?" So the Lord today is still our savior. Um, and our rock, our place of refuge, the horn of our salvation. It says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the ways of death encompassed me, the torment, torrents of destruction overwhelmed me, the cords of shields surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my Lord, to my God, and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry for help came to His ears. So here we have in this part that's really um, important is that understanding that with part from God, David is lost. You know, we can make an application here for ourselves that, you know, when without Christ, without Jesus, we are. Surrounded by death, by destruction. Like we are, like the grave is a real enemy. Death is a real enemy um, because it could, you know, without Christ separated from God and says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. You know, there's a humility of, you know, I cannot save myself. I need God to save me, I need Jesus to work on my behalf, because I'm not adequate for the task. And so we've cried out. If you've come to know the Lord already, you know, you've cried out. If you haven't come to know the Lord yet, we encourage you, cry out, and ask God to save you. In my distress I called upon the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God, and from His temple He heard me, and my cry for help came to His ears. The Lord hears those who humbly ask for forgiveness. <laughs> you know, the Lord hears those who humbly ask for salvation. It says, in the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven were trembling, were shaken. Because he was angry, smoke went up out of his nostrils, fire from his mouth devoured, coals were kindled by it. He um, bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet, and he rode on a cherub and flew, and he appeared on the wings of the wind, and he made darkness uh, canopies around him, a mass of waters, thick clouds of the sky. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed, routed them, and the channels of the sea appeared, the foundation of of the world were laid bare by the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Read the book of Revelation and see if some of that scene doesn't sound familiar. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me up into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Do we understand that our enemy was too strong for us? Sin was too strong. Sin was too strong. Satan was too strong world was too strong but God is stronger. He delivered me from those who hated me for they were too strong for me. He rescued me. He delighted in me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recommen- recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not acted wickedly against my God, for all his ordinances were before Him, before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless toward him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the clean- cleanliness before his eyes. With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the perverted, you show yourself astute. And you save an afflicted people. But your eyes are on the proud, whom you humble. Now, there it's interesting because, um, you know, when exactly David wrote this is a question mark before or after his big fall, because he has other Psalms about his. Fall into to sin, Um, and he's also in a different. Again, you know, he's in he's basing these statements, you know, on the law and what he has done before the law. Um, But we know also that every one of us is is guilty before God. You know, none of us can say can say according to my righteousness or according to my cleanliness. You know, we say. No, according to the righteousness of Jesus, according to his cleanliness, according to his purity, according to his sacrifice. Verse 29 For you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, but by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless, the word of the Lord is tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord, and who is a rock besides our God? God is my strong fortress, and he sets the blameless in his way. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me up on high places, and he trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You also have given me the shield of your salvation and your help makes me great you enlarged my steps under me and my feet have not slipped I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and I did not turn back until they were consumed I have devoured them and shattered them so that they did not rise and they fell under my feet for you have girded me with strength for battle you have subdued under me those who rose up against me you have also made my enemies turn their backs to me And I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I pulverized them as the dust of the earth. I crushed and stamped them as the mire of the streets. There, if we could apply that to sin, because we still have a real enemy, the sin that is within us, and we could say we have pursued... You know, and destroyed with the armor that God has given us because Ephesians 6 certainly tells us that we have an, honor, an armor to put on and a battle to fight. We're told we fight against principalities and powers and spiritual for- forces, darkness. You see, we have been saved and given victory over sin and death in Christ, but we have not been given an exemption from battle. We're still in battle. The Spirit of God within us to defeat the flesh, the sinful desires of one's own heart. And the spiritual forces of darkness that are active in our world leading people astray, leading people on paths of destruction. And we're still still told today to take up our armor and to go fight. Like Our faith is not passive. We do not, the scripture in the New Testament clearly tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. So the, the battlefront has changed. And the things that are compared to physical weapons are of a spiritual nature. So, where do we fight this battle? We have to fight this battle on our knees in prayer. We fight this battle by standing up for what is true and for what is right in our world. We stand up in this battle and we fight by sharing the good news of Jesus so that people can be rescued from the same things that we were rescued from. But if you and I ever think that Jesus Christ went to the cross and died just so that we can... You know, go be with him one day and sit up on a little cloud and have a harp and everything else. If that's your view of it, that's not the view of the scripture. The scripture presents to us, yes, Jesus did go and prepare a place for us. Yes, there is a home waiting for us and it was without sin and without darkness. And we are going to get to enjoy that forever forever. But nowhere in the scripture does it tell us, believe in Jesus, sit on your couch, and do nothing for the Lord. The scripture tells us, believe in Jesus and follow him as king. Follow him into spiritual battle and fight. We are to stand strong. Stand strong, active faith, not a horizontal laying down faith, not a lazy faith, an active faith. Is what God has called us to. Verse 44, you have also delivered me from the contentions of my people. You have kept me as head of the nations of people whom I have not known serve me. Foreigners pretend obedience to me, and as soon as they hear, they obey. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me and brings down peoples under me who also brings me out from my enemies. You even lift me above those who rise against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the nations, and I will sing praises to your name. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. The result of what he has experienced and lived causes David to exalt the name of God. But how much more should those of us who know Jesus today exalt the name of Jesus? The one who has done for us far better than what was done for King David. Jesus went to the cross for us we remember that this morning as we take that simple bread and simple cup that we have a savior and a king who humbled himself though fully God put on humanity and came down and died but the grave couldn't hold him and he rose bodily and Gives us victory over sin and death, and we can participate and live in His victory over spiritual darkness. This is what our God has done for us. I was sad yesterday because a couple um, Jehovah Witnesses came to the door and they asked, "You know, what's your hope?" And I mean, I certainly wasn't sad when they asked me that question about my hope because like, my hope is in Jesus, my Savior and King Jesus Christ who came and died and took my place on the cross who rose again and who will return in victory and I'm going to be with him forever and ever in his presence their hope is so far less than that because they've made Jesus merely a God they deny his ultimate divinity They deny what he's actually saving us from in terms of the judgment of God. And their hope is that a few of them will get to be in the presence of God and the rest just kind of get to exist. Separated. But exist. It's such... It, to me, it's sad because, you know, they're sincere in their, their belief of it, but it's such a, you know, they their founder had a Bible and he took, a, he took it and made it less than the inspired scripture of God and therefore has a, a message that isn't nearly adequate, isn't nearly what the Bible has in it. And that's a sad thing when people take what is our blessed hope and they substitute it for something not nearly as good. And that deceit that has been believed and at the same time perhaps the laziness of the church that leaves people vulnerable to false beliefs so we have work um, to do we have an armor to put on and we have a God to exalt but we can give thanks for what he's done for us so far and let's do that as we take the bread and the cup and have our hearts and affections be to Jesus if you know the Lord as your savior this morning you are welcome to take that bread and that cup the scripture tells us to confess our sins before we do, that we're, you know, not that, um, what I mean by that is any sins that we've you know, committed that we haven't confessed yet, that we need to take that. Uh, we need to confess before we take. Um, and then to take that with thanksgiving, um, anyone is welcome to pray or to res- request song or to, you know, read a, a passage of scripture this morning, if you know the Lord. Um, we ask if you're going to try to expound on what that says, that you know, we would know you and you would know us um, a little more deeply. You know? So we ask you to respect that. But again, it's an open table for all who call on the name of the Lord. Um, and you, are to t- you can take that as you are, are ready to take it. I'll give thanks for the bread and the cup. And it'll, the table will be open. So, Heavenly Father, we come to you. And we give you praise and glory and honor. And Lord, in this time, I pray, Lord, that our hearts and affections would be far removed from the things of our daily lives and the things of this world and the, the thoughts and stresses of, of work or other activities, Lord. And that in this time, our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our thoughts would be on you, dear Jesus, and what you accomplished for us at the cross and in your resurrection, We give you thanks and praise this morning that you are due as we take the bread representing your body and the cup representing your blood and we say thank you, Jesus, for that great sacrifice that you made for us. Help us, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.